Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, podcast listeners, it's been too long. We got a radio show for you today. And not only that, it's almost the end of the year. It's Q4 2019. Less than 100 days, you're going to have to start saying 2020. That's a new decade. Pretty good time to reflect today. We got Justin to join us here in the studio. Welcome. Howdy. How are things going? Are, are you ready for 2020? I'm not. No, I'm still in 2019 mode. It's kind of creeping up on us. I, I feel like there's not been a lot of talk about the decade ending, but you're starting to see a little bit. Yeah, I haven't haven't seen any talk on until I was speaking with you the other day about it. So what's going on in the world? What do you know? Some big news lately. Why don't you get into it with us? No commissions. Yeah, man. So... This is interesting where listeners, if you haven't seen it, and I'd be surprised if you hadn't, a lot of the big brokerages have announced a move to no cost, zero commissions for online ETFs, as well as stocks. And this is something that was really a long time in the making. And if you look back a couple decades ago, when Dean Witter and a lot of these old school brokerages around EF Hutton, I mean, Schwab used to charge $150 $150 a trade plus basis points of the commission, right? So it ended up being hundreds of dollars of trades. They kept going down and down and down. I remember my first electronic online brokerage was E-Trade. And what happened was you had this startup, Robinhood, which many are familiar with, that really pioneered no-cost trading. And eventually, the other dominoes started to fall. So a lot of them were low-cost already. So you're at 5 bucks or maybe a penny a share. Well, you have Vanguard that announced no ETF cost trading last summer. And then Interactive Brokers was really the first of the majors. And then within the course of a week, you saw, and I can't remember the exact order, Schwab, TD, Fidelity, boom, all zero. And this is awesome. And for the end investor, paying less cost is always a great thing. You know, it doesn't mean it's an excuse to go and trade your count a bunch and churn it. But anytime you have to pay less is better than paying more. Now, so the first caveat is you should definitely be at a brokerage that charges nothing to trade. But also, this is a great time to look back and reflect because a lot of investors don't realize that commissions are probably one of the lowest expenses to your actual account. And so if you have an account with one of these big brokerages, let's use Schwab as an example, the way that Schwab makes money. So people said, oh my God, I can't believe they did this. Well, Schwab only gets like 5% of its revenue from trading. So it's, yeah, maybe it's hundreds of millions of dollars to them, but the overall piece of the pie as a percentage, it's no longer that material. They make half, half of their revenue from simply interest. So they're basically a bank. And what does that mean? So let's say you have $100,000 in your brokerage account. And you know what? You got a bunch of Cambry ETFs, but you maybe have 10% in cash. Well, a lot of people are like, well, that's not a big deal. But Schwab probably pays you zero on that. And 
there's the competitors, whether it's money market funds or anything else, you should be getting paid one and a half, two percent on that, and it's totally protected. But a lot of these brokerages don't automatically sweep you into those. If you didn't sign up for a certain fund when you when you open the account, I guarantee you, we did a Twitter poll on this. Most people don't know what the cash on their investment account earns. So the same thing extends to your checking account, bank account. And so there's a lot. Uh, this is also getting pushed down. So Wealthfront announced this, Betterment announced this, and now a lot of the brokerages are trying to catch up. Betterment, you can go sign up for their checking and savings account and they pay 2%. And it's protected under the under the guidelines. I forget if it's up to like a million or what they have or the various rules because traditionally it's only 250,000 cash. But regardless, this is the way that a lot of these brokers make money. That's the way Robinhood makes money. One of the biggest ways. And then there's two other smaller ways these brokers make money. One is payment for order flow, meaning they sell your orders to a lot of these high frequency firms. I don't think that's that big of a deal. Some people do. They consider it a cost. But if you're using limit orders and you're trading liquid names in your long-term focus, it doesn't really matter. And then the last would be if you have a margin account or you're trading in an account that allows it, you checked a certain box, then these brokers can lend out your shares to short sellers. They earn interest on that. And unless you designated, they're not going to share it with you. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast before. That can be a very material source of revenue. We have some funds, all of our funds do this, but we have some that we can't promise it, but very well could generate 10, 20, 50 basis points of revenue. And one in particular, probably our cannabis strategy uh, could generate hundreds because they're in-demand short companies. So anyway, the, the whole summary of this discussion is, as you reflect at the end of this decade, first of all, make sure you have your house in order. The base case starting point, if you're an investor, is you should be paying zero commissions. You should be earning a reasonable amount on your cash balance. So I guarantee you, go look up your Bank of America, it's probably zero. You should be earning 2% on that. And some people listening have a very material cash balance. So some people we talk to have a million, $10 million sitting in cash. And by cash, they mean real cash, not cash earning 2%. And that's just lazy and gets to be a very big cost. The others are, are less important, but but take as, as you take the year-end time to reflect, it's important to look at all those things. Now, that has implications also for the brokerage industry. You know, We joked on Twitter that the brokerage industry is really a terminal short at this point because of the disruption going on. It's, it's going to be a really tough business in the future, but the asset management business too. And that probably leads into the other big piece of news, the ETF rule. I feel like I'm doing all the talking. Yeah, feel free to chime okay. in at any no, point. No, 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 no. No, it's good. I have a lot to Did, say in these topics. Yeah, yeah, and I want you to. So give us a rundown of the rule. So the ETF rule, I feel like a lot of the commentators picked up the first part, which is the ability to launch ETFs is really a patchwork put together over the years where you had to get an exemption. And it used to cost a million bucks. Then it cost us, I think, probably 200 grand. Now it doesn't cost that much. But but. You had to get all these different, and each one was unique. So whether you're active, whether you're passive, yada, 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 yada. SEC finally just said, you know what? We're going to streamline this. So it's way easier to launch a fund now. And that's what the media picked up on. However, there's a more important piece. And without spending the next two hours on the esoteric nature of this, the summary is that it allows active ETFs to have the same tax treatment as 
passive index ETFs. Why does that matter? Well, if you have an active fund that trades 50, 70, 300% turnover, normally that would generate a lot of capital gains transactions. And you see that with mutual funds. It's like 60% of mutual funds have capital gains distributions every year when the number of ETFs is only like six. So the ETF structure now with active funds as well allows ETFs, all of them, for, and we're talking about plain vanilla. We're not going to get into the weird stuff. Plain vanilla stock ETFs to be vastly more tax efficient than their mutual fund counterparts. And that's important because the vast majority of the assets still in active equity mutual funds hasn't been disrupted by the ETF structure yet. And so this could be one of the final dominoes that's starting to really put the nail in the mutual fund coffin because now the average ETF is half the cost of the average mutual fund. And the average ETF in the equity world, my estimate, and there's others that have given more and less, is about 70 basis points more tax efficient than the average mutual fund per year. In 2019, I guarantee you listeners, look out. So beginning in November, you'll start to get mutual fund estimates of capital gain distributions. And we have a big fat up year in US stocks. And I guarantee you, you're going to be shocked at the amount of distributions a lot of these mutual funds will distribute in capital gains when in an ETF, it should be, or usually is, near zero. I don't think the spiders have done a capital gain distribution ever all the way back to 1997. So this is important. And I think it's interesting, you know, to me, going back to the base, pace, base case, you should pay no commissions. You should be earning 2% under cash balance. But the base case is also you should use ETFs. And anyone that's owning mutual funds at this point, we did a tweet storm about this. I said, you know, you better have a good reason why you own mutual funds because you have two major hurdles of fees and taxes that add up to 150 basis points, 1.5%-ish, right around there. Maybe it's closer to 1.2. So we'll say 1.2%. So your mutual fund manager has to generate 1.2% alpha just to get over the structural disadvantage. So it's something that I think is, it's always useful to reflect at year in. It's also useful to reflect at decade in as of the portfolio you have. And most people we talk to, this goes back to our old zero budget portfolio. You know, if you pull out a white piece of paper, have a glass of wine, write down your ideal portfolio. And if it's not the same as what you own now, there's something wrong. So you know, these are part of the things that I think it's important for people to look at your end. It's wrapped in this whole concept of, you know, what we're talking about with uh, what's going on in the industry. And then for the ETF industry folk out there, you know, I think this could be the, the dam that really breaks when you start to see a ton of flows. Because the funny part about the ETFs that are now commission-free everywhere is mutual funds still have to pay a huge toll, which is, I mean, my poor mutual fund friends, you know, Schwab has to publish this because it's a, a public company, but they charge these mutual funds just to be on the no transaction fee platform anywhere from 0.4% to over 1% just to be on the platform and have no commissions. And so if you think about it, I used to laugh because I said half the ETFs out there, you know, they charge less in total fees than you're charging the mutual funds to be on the platform. So the mutual funds are kind of hosed. And so there's going to be this big fight coming up between mutual funds, hopefully saying, hey, brokerage platforms, pound sand, we're not going to pay these fees. But Schwab makes a billion dollars a year from one source. 
And so, you know, in both cases, this is the old guard, this is the dinosaurs, they have two choices. They can ride the gravy train for as long as possible, and plenty will. You know, if you're 60 years old, 50 years old, 70 years old, and you're in that business, say, you know what, I'm not going to be around long enough for it to matter. We're going to ride our dividends next 10 years, hopefully we don't get disrupted too quick. And the flip side is say, you got to disrupt yourself. If I was a mutual fund listening to this, I would, tonight, I would have done it yesterday, but tonight... I would transform my mutual funds into ETFs. And that's doable. That's actually not hard. The problem is you're starting to cannibalize your own revenue streams. But the question is, will you survive otherwise? Anyway, we're getting too in d- deep in this for most people, but I think it's really important, these major tectonic shifts happening in the asset management world. And I think at the end of the day, no matter what, it's a great thing for investors across the board. Agree, agree. Well, let's let's hop into some market topics. U.S. stock market, still expensive. Why don't you give us a run, quick rundown there? And uh, you have a few stats to yeah, share. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, look, listeners are probably bored to tears listening to me talk about this, but we did a fun tweet storm to put this in perspective. So if you're just looking back and reflecting, again, you're sitting in your lazy boy, watching the Broncos this weekend, depressed about it, having a tea, having a having a beer, maybe sipping some champagne. Let's call it year-end, December 31st. It's New Year's. You're cheersing your loved ones and saying, man, what a great decade it's been to be a stock investor. And it's been one of the top, if you go back the last 11 decades, it was one of the top five best performing decades. And we're talking about after inflation. Uh, so real returns to equalize decades. One of the best top half decades ever. I think we did around 10% plus inflation. That's probably around 12. So monster returns. Obviously, we're coming out of the global financial crisis, but one of the best return decades ever. But perspective, so we said, let's look back and see how that compares. And there's anything we can learn from that. So the average after inflation per decade return for stocks has been 6.6%. And again, you add you add back in the inflation that gets you up to around the historical almost 10% return of stocks. But 6.6. The worst decade was minus 3.4. Hey, that was post-technology uh, internet bubble. So the 2000s ending really at the end of the financial crisis. So pretty tough starting and ending points. But you lost about 3% per year. The best was a whopping 16.7%. Nifty 50s, 1950s exciting time and electronics. And so if you said, okay, well, let's look at the three worst decades, which would have been the 1970s, which got hammered by inflation, the 1910s and 2000s, the average across those three was minus 2.6% per year. And then the following decade, so that's pretty depressing, right? You lost money over the decade. The future decade after those averaged 12.3%. So well above average, a double average, actually. That's awesome. So had you just followed this stat after the 2000s, you would have said you should expect double returns than average, and you came pretty darn close to that. If you look at three best decades, the roaring 20s, the nifty 50s, 1990s, which I grew up in, just assume that was normal, average real return was 15.8%. So again, plus inflation, that puts you up close to 20. Future returns the next decade were only 1.1% which is terrible. So what you've seen is this mean reversion after times were romping and stomping bull, followed by usually uh, subdued returns and vice versa. So if you were kind of extrapolating, saying we're ending the decade at fifth out of the 11th, you should expect slightly lower returns in the 2020s, but still positive. 
you know, you could do all sorts of regressions, but again, you're only using 11 data points, so you can't extend too much. But this is where my capital B-U-T, and there's famous saying is you ignore everything that was said before the but and only listen to what, what, what's said after that. It shouldn't be any surprise to anyone that after the three worst decades, at the end of the decade, valuations were subdued. Meaning after you had terrible returns, not surprisingly, valuation multiples contracted. So they averaged a long-term P ratio of only 11.7. So if you think about that, that's a great starting point. But after the three best decades, valuations on average ended at 28.3. So almost over double, almost triple the low decades. So where do we stand today? We have the fifth best performing out of 11, but we have the second highest valuation out of 11. And this is a long-term P ratio of around 30. So, you know, the quick summary, and this is for super long-term perspective, obviously, celebrate the hell out of this great 10-year return, drink a bunch of champagne, be excited about the end of the 20, whatever we call these, 20 teens, but come 2020, sober up. Take your medicine and set expectations realistically and consider a decade in the future with very probably lower U.S. stock returns. Now, of course, the caveat, everyone knows here, I love foreign markets better. I think they're much cheaper. So a great way to tilt. And so there's a little bit of subdued optimism. But for most people that are U.S. listeners, they have 70 to 80% in U.S. markets. So it may be a good time to really think about investing at least half in foreign markets. And where do we stand on global valuations? One more comment, by the way, because my good friend John Hussman had a post on Twitter about a month ago where, you know, every market is different. So if you look at the late 90s, you can't just say the stock market because you have thousands and thousands of stocks that make up the stock market. In the late 90s, was the biggest bubble we've ever seen, but it was fairly concentrated to a lot of the tech and IT and biotech. And so this a lot of the big stocks turned out to be tech too, but you had this crazy bubble where the P ratio of the overall market was 45, but it was really condensed to a lot of specific companies. And so if you had a value or a dividend approach, you actually did quite fine from 2000, 2003. Now you have a scenario where if he broke it into deciles, so 10 different deciles or buckets of the US stock market, and he did um, the S&P 500, so 50 companies each. The difference now is that everything is more expensive. The most expensive decile is not quite 2000 levels yet, but it's more expensive than any other period. But everything else is more expensive than 2000. So think about it this way, that it's not a concentrated bubble like 99, where it's all in a certain amount of stocks. It just happens to be that the entire market is elevated and more expensive. So there's probably what you would consider to be less places to hide. And obviously, my, my takeaway is that if you look at the rest of the world, foreign developed is coming in at sort of the low 20s. So a totally reasonable valuation for a low inflation environment. Foreign emerging, which is my favorite, is probably around 15 uh, And then, of course, my real favorite, if you move beyond the just main indices, is the cheapest bucket is down around 11 or 12 again. And the interesting part is a lot of those countries uh, are having a great year this year. So two of the best performing countries in the world, Greece and Russia. It's going to surprise everyone listening that Greece has the highest PMI in the world. <laughs> so their economy apparently is doing great. 
But again, valuation is a blunt tool. We don't know when it turns, but in general, you know, as you reflect on this on this decade, but you know, again, I've been saying this for a few years, it, it makes a lot of sense, I think, to tilt away from the US and towards the rest of the world. One more thing that I think is important as you take all this information in about what I talked about with ETFs, what we talked about with commissions and your accounts, and you reevaluate and look towards the future. One of the big benefits, of course, is also to be tax aware. And so we always tell people if you're using automated brokerage, Vanguard just announced, by the way, that they have an automated brokerage option, a true robo advisor, which all in is going to be 20 bips. They do a great job of tax loss harvesting. But if you're doing it on your own, it's something to consider. And so with a lot of these funds and a lot of strategies, if you have some losers, you can sell them and replace with other funds, consistently bank ones. We just launched a cannabis fund, which probably has the best tax loss harvesting potential of, of anything because every single one of the other ETFs, including our own, is at all-time lows. So uh, it, it's an interesting time to be thinking about that. You're a trend follower. Wanted to get into this a little bit, kind of on the subject of valuations as well. Something that you know everyone has, a, there's all kinds of views on this, how to use it what it really should look like. But in general, where do you see trend following stacking up, whether that be on its own or or as a way to sort of uh, look at triggers or signals when we see some of these very expensive or very inexpensive markets around the world? You know, I mean, trend following is, is having a pretty good year. It obviously depends on how you define it, but the managed futures complex is actually having a pretty great year. But traditional trend following is doing just fine. The consideration is, is always that if you look at trend following bucketed per market or as an entire portfolio, you know, I think we go back to our old, very old discussion on trend and value in the US stock market where we put it into four buckets. And the best performing has always been a cheap uptrend. And the worst performing is an expensive downtrend. And right now we're in the second best performing bucket which is an expensive uptrend. And despite, you know, I feel like the media and Twitter and everyone feeling like pulling their hair out. I mean, the market's up, depending on when this publishes, 15, 20% this year. It's had a monster year. So the trend has still been positive. It just, it, it gets hairy when that trend rolls over. And whether that happens 2019, 2020, 2025, who knows? But that's the nice thing about having that approach is it's objective you can have it rules based. But as far as right now, the US trend is up. But, you know, that's something to to be wary about, particularly when when markets are elevated. Yeah. And and let's get into that a little bit. Some of the uh, risks we have with these late cycle situations or late cycle moves at some point may not ever happen. I don't know. But at some point, looking at history, we may have a recession coming down the pipeline. Risk we run definitely holding expensive assets and at the end of cycles. So we had, you had a couple of great conversations with some fairly well-known people in finance, Cam Harvey and Rao Paul. They both had some warnings on the recession front. Give us a little rundown of what they're talking about and kind of what your thinking is on that, how, how investors maybe should be incorporating this this thinking into their yeah, I mean, you know, Cam, certainly the big yield curve guy, Rao, the big PMI guy. I think both things are indicators that are worth being aware of. Uh, you know, if you look at stats, we had a Ned Davis stat that I'll bring up as well. We were talking about interest rate cuts and how this all plays in. And the interesting part is after the first Fed cut, 
this goes all the way back to 1950, actually over the next year, you had earnings down on average, it was about 8%. But you also had S&P up 14% on average, PE ratio also went up. So in other words, people, uh, the multiple expanded. And so as far as the timing on a lot of this stuff is always, you know, who knows, is it this quarter? Is it 2020? Which quarter in 2020? Who knows? And that's the hard part if you're a subjective investor, which is why, of course, we use trend as our, as our final determination. But you're seeing a lot of these signs. You know, you're seeing uh, the PMI is really weakening in a lot of different places. They're strong in a lot of places, but there's just a lot going on that I think gives people pause. But again, I'm a trend guy. And so until that final red light is flashing from yellow to red, it's not the it's not the final say. But you've also had a monster year this year too of bonds. Man, what a fantastic year they've had. Not a lot of people predicting US bond yields going down as low as, as they have. I got an old tweet I retweet every once in a while. I said, wake me up when the US bonds hit 0.5% because <laughs> we're living in a strange world of of negative interest rates in so many places. And and who knows who knows where they go from here? Certainly I don't. But real estate has had a fantastic year too. I think the asset class that's probably been the biggest laggard has been commodities. You've seen precious metals pick up a little bit. But uh, some of the big shops we've tweeted out have particularly strong expectations for commodities going forward. Vanguard, of all people, I think said commodities would be one of the best performing markets over the next five, 10 years. So it's an interesting because you go back a decade ago, pre-financial crisis, and everyone wanted commodities. Oh, my God. That was the big diversifier. And then most of the people have puked them out since. Anyone who allocated a big strategic allocation of commodities in the 10 years since has, has probably sold it, uh, except for us. We, we still like them. But uh, at some point, that, that, that will turn as well. When? Who knows? But at some point, you'll, you'll see an uptrend and strength there. But precious metals certainly have been doing well. Part of that is historically gold seems to do great during negative real interest rates. So we'll see. Who knows? Moving on, we have a couple listener questions. So first off, Meb, you've talked several times about papers that look into what percentage of stocks make up the most of returns, which find that it's a small percentage and a lot of stocks fail to beat T-bill returns. I think the conclusion most people reach is that since it's such a small percentage and it's hard to know which stocks are going to be the top, then the best solution is to index. Also, I've heard many people say that shorting is very difficult since stocks mostly go up over time. But aren't these two conclusions contradictory? If most stocks fail to beat the index and a significant percentage of them fail to beat T-bills, then shouldn't shorting be easier since the chances are that you short a stock that doesn't even beat T-bills. All of this before costs, of course. Obviously, it isn't that easy, but I fail to reconcile the two conclusions. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. The reader hits on a very important concept of power laws dominate everything around us when it comes to investing. So talking about the stocks that return 10, 100 times your money, the McDonald's, the Walmarts, the Googles, the Amazons over time. And so if you index, you're guaranteed to own those. You're also guaranteed to own the losers, which are most stocks. And on the flip side, shorting, the difficulty with shorting is, is numerous. One is that, yes, on average, are you going to pick a stock uh, that will underperform the index? On average, yes. But 
you're also on average going to pick a stock that could be a five, 10, a hundred bagger, in which case you're going to lose all your money. And so it's a position sizing issue on top of that. It's almost impossible for investors to short because of the cost of borrowing them, et cetera, et cetera. There's a bunch of number of other considerations. And it's also just a losing game. In general, you have a headwind of shorting that the market historically goes up almost 10% a year. So what you do when you have concentrated portfolios is, again, you're hoping that the characteristics you include in that portfolio gives you a better chance of outsized returns over time. And what that magic number is, there's somewhat of a trade-off where if you're too small, you run too much risk of not having the right stocks in that portfolio. So if someone buys a portfolio that says five or 10 stocks, is that enough? That's tough. Because if you miss the big winners, then you're really going to underperform. Now you may get the big winners, in which case you really outperform. But if you own 500 stocks out of the 3,000 out there-ish, is that enough or is that too many? Are you going to lose some of the benefits of having a concentrated portfolio? You know, we, we tend to settle on around 100 for us. Some of our friends like the Alpha Architect crew, I think, does 50. Some do more. And granted, we're not a 50, 100 $500 billion shop, so we don't have to worry about it. But in general, I'm comfortable with around 100 for enough breadth to capture uh, the big winners, but also concentrated enough for it to make a difference. But again, the, the shorting side is hard. We prefer to short through indices and derivatives uh, as a way to capture the short side of, of the book versus individual names, despite how much fun it may be. So next question, Meb comments, there are a lot of managers that fail to meet their benchmarks which is backed up by evidence. Meb also mentions you can't judge a manager on the short term, but need to stick with a strategy for a market cycle, say roughly 10 years. But he has pushed this out to 20 years recently. So my question is, how do I tell if a manager's system is just terrible, broken, out of favor, like value versus waiting for 20 years to realize they are wrong? If I work 40 years and waste half the time on a bad manager, I have to make that up on the back end if I, if I have less time for compounding. You know, I think this is a great argument for why you shouldn't be mucking around with discretionary managers. It's so hard, you know, trying to pick stock pickers. Like all my friends that work at these big endowments or CalPERS, et cetera, spend all day interviewing managers. I, I don't envy them because, I mean, it is kind of fun, but I don't envy them in the sense that how do you know when that manager has just become complacent in their wealth? They're not excited about going to work as much now that they have $100 million as they did when they had zero. How do you know they're not going through a divorce? How do you know they're not abusing substances? How do you know, you know that they're, or is it just their styles out of favor, right? So these are really hard questions. And honestly, um, it's a game that I just, I don't particularly really want to play. On the flip side, Applying that to assets, asset classes, strategies, you know, I think it goes back to the old concept of process over performance. If you were simply to look back at the last 10 years, you'd say, well, you just put all your money in US stocks. Why would you do anything else? That's crazy. But if you looked at process, you would realize, hey, these asset classes go in and out of favor. And US stocks had a terrible run 10 years prior. And other stocks did great, or other asset classes, excuse me. And there tends to be a season for all of them. So I, I think if, once you build in a good process, then it's a scenario that you feel a lot, I feel a lot higher level of confidence that it's going to be repeatable. But so let's say someone says, well, Matt, what about value? 
you know, at what point do you think value doesn't work anymore because it hasn't been great this past cycle or whatever it may be, you know, to which I would say I, I would have a hard time disbelieving in the concept of value because what's the alternative just to buy investments without any regard to valuation whatsoever? That seems crazy to me. So, you know, you, you eventually at some point get comfortable with whatever your process may be. The hardest certainly is just handing over the keys to discretionary managers and saying, have at it. You know, do I think those people exist? Absolutely. But introduces so many more potential fractures of where there could be failures in the whole process. And evidence shows, for the most part, people are really bad at timing the the entry and exit points with these managers. Usually they just chase performance, buy them after they're hot, sell them after they're cold, reams and reams of evidence on that. You know, and so to me, I think it's just much simpler to come up with a strategic allocation and just and let it let it uh, go on autopilot. So I do want to ask, get into this a little bit deeper if you can, how should investors be thinking about evaluating process? Because there could be somebody who literally has just a written process. There could be managers who have thorough processes that are rigorous in all kinds of forms. How should they be looking at it? You know, it's a personal question. I think we encourage people to develop a written investing plan. Most don't. Vast majority of people don't. I'd probably say 90% don't. And to at least write it down and try to work out your thoughts. And that could be as simple as, you know what? I do 60-40 rebounds once a year. That's what I do. I invest in Vanguard's automated digital robo-advisor. I dollar cost average. That's what I do. I buy top 20 dividend stocks, you know, whatever it may be. I think it's important to find something that really resonates with you and your personality. The challenge for a lot of people, they think they know what that is until they go through the hard times. So they say, yeah, I'm, I got this aggressive portfolio. I can invest a ton in stocks and then stocks go down 50% like they do all the time. And they go, oh my God, I can't, I can't take it. I got to sell. This is crazy. This is, how does it, you know, and it just, it doesn't uh, relate to with what they thought they would behave like in the beginning. And so, you know, having a thoughtful respect for history, studying how markets have done historically, stress testing them through different environments, but also realizing that the future is going to be different than the past, you know, I think is all important. And, you know, trying to come up with a base case expectations. And what we tell people, you know, we say, look, I still laugh at all the 8% expectations for pension funds and endowments and everyone else. They're starting to come down a little bit. But I laugh and we wrote a paper on this called uh, Investing with Eyes Closed and Fingers Crossed, something like that, you know, where historically these strategic allocation portfolios have returned about 4 5% plus inflation. So if you're in a no to low inflationary world, how are you magically expecting 8%? And particularly adding on the fact that bonds now are yielding 1%, 2 if you're lucky half the world, they're negative. So where are you going to get that return? Well, if you're expecting from stocks where US stocks are expensive, uh, it's going to be tough, tough sledding. So anyway, you know, I think all this comes to having a respect for history, having a broad expectations that are reasonable, as opposed to most who, who are unreasonable. Uh, most investors expect 10% plus. And then just trying to think through it. And in resisting the urge and temptation to chase returns, urge and temptation to muck with the process because most of us want to 
It's it's very seductive and easy to do, particularly now that commissions are zero, costs you nothing to mess mess everything up. But in general, just think about the process and, and be wary of fees, taxes, everything else in between. Great. Solid advice. That's all I got today. All right, good. Well, listeners, it's been a while. We need some more ammo. Send us feedback, questions. We'll add them to the queue. Feedback at themebfabershow.com. Enjoy hearing everything you have to say. Leave us a review. We love to read them. Maybe we'll start reading some of the reviews on the air. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Breaker, anywhere podcasts are sold. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.